Hey everyone, this is the producer of Passing Through the Podcast. And next week is our season two finale. And just like season one, we are taking all of your questions, comments, concerns, and anything else you want to know. Send us a DM on Instagram at Passing Through Pod, or you can shoot us an email with your questions at Passing Through Podcast at gmail.com. And now, here's episode six. In this last written episode of Passing Through Season 2, I tell my mom's story. Over two million people were killed in the Cambodian genocide that happened in 1975. The Cambodia she once knew became a mass grave, with a third of the population being wiped out by starvation, malnutrition, murder, and disease. She made the brave, life-changing decision in 1979 to escape. We've been meaning to sit down, write, and record this story for years. In this episode, I have the honor of taking on the perspective of my mother, as I narrate the darkest, most profound time in her life. I hope you all enjoy episode six of season two, Passing Through Kampuchea. My heart almost almost cracked cracked through the walls of my chest. chest. I was certain they'd hear us. I remember the rhythm of my breath, the soreness of my feet, and the roaring symphony of cicadas. I wanted to stop for water, but if I stepped outside the line, I'd die and they'd have no choice but to leave my body or they'd die too. The land was littered with mines and only our guide knew a safe way through. Moonlight poured through the thick jungle brush, guiding us as we climbed over rocks and crossed rivers in single file, trusting in shadows to lead us through the dark, to the border, to safety. B was in front of me with members of his family close behind, all five of us strangers only months ago. I traded the only thing my mother gave me, a thin bracelet gilded with rubies to pay the guide. It was the last thing I wore of hers besides her worries. The night before I left, Mott begged me not to go. I could be killed, she kept shouting. What do I even know of B and his family? There was no one from my side to protect me if anything went wrong, she continued. I left the next morning, before first light, off my father's blessing. Years before the war, before the killing, before the camps, before millions like us had to flee their homes, he knew the day would come where he'd have no choice. He'd have to let me go. I was around ten years old when I met the man who could see without sight. Hand in hand, Pa and I walked to his favorite cafe. A small place with a palm roof and earth floors, mismatched plastic chairs and a cramped open kitchen. Pa ordered coffee the hue of his skin, a rich cocoa brown. He'd take his time between sips, making candid conversation with regulars. Typical talks of government, farming, and family. Before leaving, he bought an extra cup for the blind man outside, kneeling down to hand it to him before we walked home. Kang, who is with you today? The blind man asked my father. How did he know I was here? I remember thinking. I never said a word. I looked at him, skeptically, studying his face. His eyes were glazed a milky white like the color of water when Mott boils rice. He'd known Pa for a long time, but he'd never met any of his children. His ears must have perked when he heard my offbeat footsteps closely following my father's. Bring her closer, said the blind man. He reached out and grabbed my hand, cradling my fingers in his soft, leathery paw. Ah, he said, smiling, his dull eyes darting left and right. When the time comes, Kang, he continued now in a serious, somber tone. 
when the time comes, let her go. She'll only return if you let her go. My father paused, looking at me then back at the blind man, but didn't question further. Almost six years later, there were thunderous knocks at the door before dawn. It was April 15, 1975, two days before the Khmer Rouge seized cities across Cambodia. Pa quickly tied a sarong and rushed to the door. The man, dressed in a loose all-black uniform and rubber slippers, spoke in whispers. The man in black offered fierce instruction on how to prepare for the days to come. Rice will be more valuable than gold, he said. Build a wagon, bring jewelry and items to trade, pots to cook. Remember, Kang, you are no one, your wife is no one, your children are no one. Never say you own land or your own business. You never went to school and you don't know how to read or write. Ignorance will keep you and your family alive. I must go, the man in black said earnestly, bowing a final time to leave a home that he and my family would never see again. Mott tightly gripped the tiny hands of my two toddler cousins as we ushered our way into the crowd of thousands. I held the side of our wagon, watching more and more families being waved from their homes. Comrades, we must go now, we have no time, let's go, the soldiers in black repeated, some looking no older than me at 16. They were unmoved by the cries of children, the pleas of mothers and fathers, and the immobility of the disabled. With hands pressed tightly in prayer, people begged for mercy and pleaded for more time, to no avail. Those without forewarning took only what they could lift. Some carried their sick parents, chickens, or small bundles of food. Others brought only bags of money, which, like we were warned, would be a grave mistake. Our currency proved useless under the Khmer Rouge. Over the next few days, those who only brought money were the first to starve. Where's Matt? My younger brother yelled from the opposite side of the wagon, interrupting my days. Pa, where's Matt? He asked again. A small panic set in as we scanned the crowd. People were easily separated from their families during this exodus to never see their loved ones again. Ma, ma, I shouted in a frenzy on the verge of tears. Pa heaved the wagon to a stop along the side of the road by a cluster of palm trees. He didn't call her name, he just calmly surveyed the crowd. After a few minutes, Pa spotted her and my cousins and re-entered the chaos to retrieve them. We rejoined without a word and continued for six more miles on foot. That night, my brother and I laid thin straw mats on the grass while Pa made a fire, poking and prodding the sparks until a sizable flame licked out from the middle. Ma handed us a modest piece of dry fish to share while she boiled rice. My younger brother, dissatisfied with his ration, started to whine for more. Ma, still stirring with one hand, caught Pa by his arm. See them, she snapped, pointing to two boys about five and six, both barefoot and crying, wandering from family to family, begging for rice. Please, we're hungry, they sobbed, almost in unison. Be thankful you had food tonight, she said sharply. Those boys won't live to see next week. After almost a week on foot, we arrived at my uncle's village, south of Kampuncham. Three Cameroon soldiers in all black sat near the entrance, searching everyone. They confiscated and destroyed things they called imperialist propaganda, like foreign currency, books, and toys. A man in front of us turned pale, watching his journals rip to shreds and set ablaze in the name of Anchor. Anchor does not allow individualist learning, the boy in black kept repeating, burning pieces of the man's past one sheet at a time. Without protest, we rustled open our bags and emptied our belongings onto the earth. The boys in black examined our things, finding nothing to destroy. Who are you? Where do you come from? What are your names? Your professions? The tall one barked. My name is Kang, Pa responded. 
I worked on a farm in a province near here. I don't remember the province name. I moved around quite a bit. This is my family, Pa continued, gesturing towards us. The tall one scribbled something down on a crumpled piece of paper and nodded to the others. You may pass, comrades, he said, waving us towards the village. Thick piles of height of palm trees raised rows and rows of wooden houses, the vast spaces below acting as storage for motorbikes, utensils, and livestock. Each structure adorned a windy ladder leading up to the front door. We exchanged greetings with my uncle, the teat stoic man with hair the color of charcoal, while his wife and four daughters waited for us in the house. It was comforting to see familiar faces, though all of us uneasy of the weeks to come. Work started the next day. A gong sounded at 5 a.m. followed by the shouts of soldiers. They lined us up then divided us into three groups, men, women, and children. All of us became laborers under the new law. The routine was the same for weeks. Wake up at 5 a.m. with a short stop for lunch, a bowl of watery rice soup, then back to the rice fields. We broke our backs, planting rice in freshly plowed fields, our skin searing under a sun I once looked forward to seeing. We leave tomorrow, Mott said in a low, stern voice. I listened carefully, legs crossed on a bamboo mat near my brother's. I was only allowed to stay one night with my family before heading back to the fields the following day. We can't stay here, Kang, Mott continued, quietly wrapping our pots in a thick tangerine sarong. In less than a month, several people in our camp had been killed. If they didn't die of starvation or exhaustion, they were taken into the forest for what the Cameroons called re-education, to never return. They don't use bullets. They say it's a waste, whispered women at camp. I heard they put plastic over your face or drown you in water. In the rice fields, I kept to myself. If people asked me my name, I only gave my first. If they asked me where I was from, I would say I don't remember. One woman named Neri thoughtlessly told a soldier that she used to be a teacher. The next morning, her black uniform was neatly folded on a mat beside me. Ma and Pa were right to have us leave. We set foot for our in-laws' province before dawn. My parents received word later on that the killings increased shortly after our departure. My uncle, his wife, and their four daughters all slaughtered like animals, along with hundreds of others. In the new province, the work was the same. The routine, almost identical but the rations were a little bit better. Vegetation was abundant, which meant we could sneak wild mushrooms or herbs in our pockets on our days off to boil for dinner. Rice was measured in a rusty, condensed milk can, a family of six getting two scoops a day. Mott would hide rice in empty cans, tucking them away in every corner of our sparse wooden space. We'd all seen lifeless bodies being hauled out of houses or corpses floating in the fields at camp. People were dying of malnutrition, exhaustion, and disease. Ma made sure, at the very least, we wouldn't starve. I felt for my brothers, both too young to work. Laughing was outlawed under the Camarouge. Children could not play. All toys were destroyed, and the only school they were allowed to attend had a communist curriculum. I saw their spirits fade from province to province. Laughter and play was just as much nourishment as food and water. On one of my days off, I went to visit my sister Saim in the local hospital. She burned the soles of her feet stepping on ashes and needed ointment and bandages to help with the healing. The hospital was more of a morgue than an actual place to get treatment. Lines of rusty metal beds were blanketed in wet, worn rags. Rows of bony bodies lay out in the open, flies and mosquitoes having their fill. I looked around in panic, not seeing Sa'im. Ati, she called from the corner of the room. I rushed to her, looking around for soldiers in case I needed to mask my emotions. With none in sight, I fell to her side in tears. 
I'm okay, she kept repeating, trying to console me. I gathered myself and sat next to her bed. A tall, skinny boy with obsidian eyes had been watching me the entire time. He struggled to sit upright to introduce himself, but was too weak to speak. His clothes were torn and soaked in sweat. Malaria, I thought to myself. I glanced at him shyly, then continued tending to my sister. Days later, the boy with malaria I'd caught staring at the hospital sent his aunt by our house to ask about my hand in marriage. His name was B. My parents, apprehensive at first, agreed to the arrangement. Within a week, B became my husband in a secret ceremony near the Shuka Palms. Weeks after B and I's ceremony, I visited my parents to tell them about our plan to escape. You could be killed, Mott shouted, pacing back and forth, almost stepping on my sleeping brothers curled tightly in the corner. I bowed my head, staring at the jumble of jagged wooden slabs carefully nailed together. I can go with her, my cousin B interjected. No, 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 Mott replied, dismissing the idea with a single syllable. I understood her worry. We'd heard stories of others trying to escape and being caught and killed, mines dismembering bodies and people dying of starvation along the way. You must go, Pa said, taking my hands in his. Do you remember what the blind man said when you were small? He asked. I nodded yes, my face still facing the floor. My daughter, it's time. It's time for you to go with B and his family. You will suffer and your journey will be difficult, but you will make it. Don't worry about your mother and I. You'll be back. I didn't sleep that night. B's family packed a wagon full of rice, dry fish, and pots for cooking. We started a five-month journey to Sim Rip at 3 a.m. the following morning. My mother met me outside in the brisk open air and tied a gold bracelet around my wrist without a word, shutting her eyes in prayer. Relying on the sun's shadow to lead us in the right direction, we walked from province to province. The days started to blend together, a montage of endless crossfire and fear of being spotted and killed. The country became a mass grave, the rice fields its caskets. Thankfully, most villagers were welcoming, allowing us to take shelter under their houses or sleep with the livestock at night. Over the next four months, we traded jewelry, sarongs, and other small possessions for rice and supplies to prepare for the last leg of our journey, from Simrip to Thailand. A small crowd started to form near a local pagoda in Simrip. B and I pushed our way towards the front to see three men dressed in dark green, preparing to make an announcement. We can only take fifteen at a time, roared the stout man in green, his arms cutting the air like a machete. The crowd began to murmur. We have seven, B yelled, raising his hand. The sturdy man pulled B to the side and spoke to him alone. We meet with our guide tomorrow, B confirmed, returning to the group. Our guide was soft-spoken but knowledgeable. He told us what time we'd leave the route we'd take and what we needed to prepare the night before. The lighter the load, the better, he said. There are landmines everywhere, that's why you need to stay in single file. And if you make noise, you put the whole group in danger. We nodded our heads in unison, no one posing any questions, just listening. Our lives depended on it. By 8 a.m., we were already five hours into the jungle. The forest came alive in pace with the sun, the hot, syrupy air sticky with insects. Sweat poured like a stream down my neck and back as giant mosquitoes feasted on open skin. Curious spectators in our fight for survival, monkeys swung from tangled vines, playfully stirring our canopy of cover. We were making good distance, moving quickly, everyone walking at a similar speed. You've come too far to stop now, I'd repeat to myself when I wanted to give up. 
ignoring sharp pain shooting through my spine from hours of walking without rest. While climbing over a hill, a loud crack stopped everyone still. Bee's cousin gasped. Panicked, she desperately looked around for instruction. A landmine, we thought. Too fearful to move, we waited for a signal from the guide to continue. He walked towards her, slowly, squatting down to examine the area. Bee's cousin began to shake, tears falling from her chin like rain. Time stopped. We had to leave her if it was a landmine. If we stayed, we'd all die. Our guide looked up, balled his fist, and lifted his thumb. We began again, one foot in front of the other, in single file. Our group ate in silence. One of us would boil rice over a tiny fire so we didn't attract attention. Occasionally, we'd hear explosions or gunfire in the distance and freeze like prey. When night fell, we'd spread our mats and take peace and sleep, the only real escape from reality. We're close, our guide said the next morning in a soft whisper. Once we cross the river, you all be safe. The further we moved from the bank, the deeper the water. Waves tapped the top of my neck, splashing onto my cheeks. Sharp rocks sliced the soles of my feet, leaving them bruised and bloody. I could feel flesh dangling off the side of my heel, but if I stopped, the current would consume me. One foot in front of the other, just like on land, our guide repeated. We held our things above our heads in an attempt to keep them dry. The water rose, swirling around my mouth, making breathing almost impossible. Arms trembling, I jerked my head above water, taking several deep breaths through my nose. We're almost there, I thought to myself, tears streaming down my face. When we finally crossed, I kissed the ground and collapsed on the bank, thankful, but too tired to continue. Thailand was flooded with Cambodian refugees. You, this way, you, that way, directed Thai officers in khaki uniforms. In a split second, B, his family, and I were separated in a sea of people. Follow the line, the men in khaki kept shouting in broken Khmer. Lost in the maze of strangers, I frantically searched for B, his aunt, and cousins in the crowd. I was forced into a tent of over 500 people and handed a paper asking for my name, age, and where I was from. Too tired to think, I spread my thin mat in the corner of the crowded tent, letting the nightmare of the five-month journey fade to black. There was no word for B or his family for the next month. No update on where I'd be placed or how long we'd remain at camp. Every so often, I'd see a few buses pick people up from different sites, but we didn't know where they'd be going. Some said the capital, some said a different camp with better conditions. Whatever it was, people were anxious for answers, and impatience spread like a virus. I had to learn to adapt, alone, in a camp full of people I'd never met in a country I'd never been. A tea! B's aunt shouted, frantically searching my tent. It was hours before dawn and I thought I was dreaming. Ming, I yelled, springing up from my mat, almost stepping on rows of women and rushed to greet her. Let's go, let's go, she said, pulling me towards the exit. Outside, a white bus waited, already filled with people. Come, come, she said, gently guiding me with one hand around my waist. B applied for us. We got sponsored by a family. I looked at her, confused. They call them the Franks, she continued. Ati, we are going to America. I boarded the bus and hugged B, tears falling from my face as the door closed behind us. The day after B and his aunt picked me up from the site, thousands of people were loaded onto buses and forced back into Cambodia. 
Many died with no guides trying to find their way through the jungle and back into Simrib. B and his aunt saved my life. For five years, my family didn't know I was alive. I didn't write in fear of the letter being intercepted and their lives being put in danger. On a Sunday afternoon in May, I ripped a piece of lined paper from Mom and Dad Frank's notebook. Shaking, I pressed the ballpoint pen to the paper. Pa, I wrote. The blind man was right. Thank you all so much for listening to the last written episode of season two. It means the world to me, my mom, as well as my family. The stories of those we love so often get forgotten. They deserve to be told and to be remembered. Thank you again for taking the precious time to listen. The season finale airs next Sunday where we take questions from all of you beautiful listeners. Make sure to send them to at PassingThroughPod on IG or via email if it's a longer question via PassingThroughPodcast at gmail.com. I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of you. See y'all soon.